Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Some of the stories we take up this week on This Week in FCPA include the Facebook whistleblower, Petrofac settles with a serious fraud office, what are ESG and business risks and how do they intersect, the Department of Justice to emphasize white criminal cases going forward in the Biden administration, what is the intersection of ancient history and FCPA enforcement? Dick Casson explains in the FCPA blog. What are the lessons learned from the Pandora Papers? How can you use AI for pattern recognition in investigations? Will ethical lapses at the Federal Reserve Bank sink the Powell nomination for a second term? The big stink in green bonds? Would you trust Ozzy as Ozzy says it is open for business again? Risk-based compliance and ransomware. Where is the intersection? New podcast, surveys, Converge 21, and much more, all on This Week in FCPA, the Facebook Whistleblower Edition. This is Tom Fox. Due to travel schedules this week, I'm going to be doing a solo effort on this week in FCPA. For our first story, we look at the lessons learned from the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Hagen. Ms. Hagen was on 60 Minutes on Sunday night, and she followed up from the Wall Street Journal investigative series where she turned over a large number of documents. Well, she outed herself on the 60 Minutes uh, show this week, and it was really just an incredible performance. The next day, she testified before Congress, and later in the week, she flew to Europe to testify before um, European regulators about what she believes is the culpability in Facebook. Aaron Nicodemus uh, wrote a great article about this on Lessons Learned. And uh, when he wrote the uh, story on Tuesday, the week was certainly off to a rough start for Facebook. And, of course, it even got worse as the trove of internal documents uh, provided proof of the allegations that the social media giant prioritizes profits over people and that the algorithms it uses fosters discord. The... um, interesting point Aaron raised was that motivations matter. And the whistleblower in this series, motivations um, really uh, exposed uh, what uh, she believed uh, were some significant uh, problems at Facebook. Uh, She said uh, she made it clear she doesn't hate Facebook. She loves it and she wants to save it. Uh, Like many whistleblowers, she uh, raised these internally and was completely rebuffed. And indeed, her unit, the Public Integrity Unit, has been disbanded. Whether or not that uh, means that the functions have rolled into other parts of the business, it really doesn't matter uh, because the appearance is uh, just horrendous. 
uh, corporate ethics programs need to be uh, supported, and that's the civic integrity unit that she was a part of, which fo- focused on issues around the elections on a worldwide basis, but focused on the U.S. election in November. But the disbanding of the unit uh, really, in her mind, led directly to the inter- insurrection on January 6th. Uh, interestingly, um, uh, Aaron identifies that internal controls can be a liability shield, and whistleblowers often demand openness and accountability of their employers, and those are certainly noble goals, but by using internal controls, you can make your business not only uh, more efficient, but at the end of the day, uh, both detect and prevent uh, conduct that's either illegal or could cause reputational damage. Uh, Francis Hagan has already uh, disclosed the information to the Securities and Exchange Commission and uh, Mark Zuckerberg in perhaps one of the most tone-deaf uh, explanations ever uh, really lashed out and uh, attacked not only the whistleblower and the allegations, but defended Facebook in a way that made it clear uh, that he doesn't care uh, about these allegations. He's not going to take them seriously. And it's certainly going to lead to, if not increased government scrutiny, but may even lead to regulatory changes and perhaps the breakup of Facebook. So um, we're going to have to continue to watch this story. Uh, Next up, from... The uh, Jacqueline Jager writing at Compliance Week, uh, she talks about the Pandora, Pandora Papers and what are the takeaways for compliance. Well, she sees uh, several key takeaways uh, as it opened up Pandora's box for business and organizations uh, entangled in its worldwide web of shell companies, offshore trusts, and secret ha- havens. Uh, The FinCEN files revealed money laundering to a systemic problem, but the Pandora Papers suggest a much more broken system where regulators are barely tipping the iceberg of uh, in the fight against financial crimes. And the Pandora Papers revealed a much higher power at play here. Governments, the real custodians of the financial system with the authority to drive change from the top. One of the biggest things exposed was not only how uh, some of the top politicians literally across the world have hid money over uh, the years, but the uh, what uh, is called the enablers of the uh, people hiding the money. It's law firms. It is trust companies. It is multinational banks. It is accounting firms literally headquartered in uh, the United States and Europe. The Pandora Papers further allege that the U.S. has emerged as a leading tax haven, especially South Dakota, which shelters billions in wealth and some link to individuals and companies accused of financial crimes. So she concludes by saying only time will tell what new compliance, legal, and financial implications will result from it, but chief compliance officers need to brace for what's coming down the road. Next up, Mike Volkoff takes a look at the intersection of ESG and business risk in leveraging compliance resources. Uh, One of the areas of expertise for uh, CCOs is in risk management. And uh, obviously, ESG is a hot-button issue surrounding corporate management. And CCOs have embraced ESG as an important tool to leverage their own needs. ESG has brought an important perspective back to corporate governance. As a critical part of that function is ethics and compliance, and CCOs need to be ready for this and push their own agenda forward. 
CCOs could have an additional opportunity uh, that I certainly agree with in the ESG world, and uh, that's around corporate governance, including culture survey, conflict of interest platforms, corporate training, and related initiatives. Obviously, HR is an important part of that uh, uh, and is a big beneficiary, but certainly compliance with as well. ESG is a movement that's here to stay with us because it reflects a confluence of several significant social trends. Stakeholders and consumers are demanding better performance from their private sector. This may reflect a growing frustration with our political system and the inability of the government to solve problems. Investors, shareholders, and communities want companies to address climate change, to reduce carbon impact, and to focus on social justice and reduce discrimination and to promote diversity. Those are big issues, and certainly uh, compliance can lead the way on this. Next up, from Harry Casson at the uh, FCPA blog, a reporting that Petrobrock, Petrofoc, rather, settled with Sirius Fraud Office for $105 million for Petrofox, um, bribery and corruption in Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and the UAE. As part of the plea agreement, um, it pled guilty to seven separate offenses of failing to prevent bribery between 2011 and 2017. Petrofac used agents to systemically bribe officials to win contracts in Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and the aforementioned UAE. Uh, as part of Monday, uh, the settlement, which happened on Monday of this week, Petrofac agreed to pay a confiscation order of $31 million, a fine of $64.2 million, and uh, $9.5 million to co- cover the costs of the serious fraud office. So we're going to be looking at the Petrofac uh, agreement with uh, the United uh, Kingdom going forward. Uh, there has been no word on any enforcement action from the uh, United States at this point. So uh, next up from Corporate Compliance Insights. When corruption investigations run cold, AI analysis can revive the case by Viral Gosalia. I hope I pronounced that right. In a really interesting uh, piece, uh, she says that automated analysis of big data and new sentiment processing are opening doors for fraud investigators to hone in on wrongdoing faster and with more discretion. Although this is not a silver bullet, these patterns and identification techniques have broad investigations uh, techniques, uh, brought investigation techniques rather to a new level. Uh, As corruption and fraud is on the rise, certainly after the pandemic, corporate enforcement actions and penalties are taking new heights. Um, The uh, initiatives brought by uh, such products include Microsoft announcing a new anti-corruption technology and solutions initiative to use AI to proactively prevent, detect, and combat government corruption. Analytics developer Palantir is innovating data intelligence and predictive analytics to help investigators recognize patterns of behavior across disparate data sets and gain insight into financial identity and other types of fraud. The legal industry is also rapidly automating um, data analysis and research techniques. There is a variety of applications of this type of analysis in corruption investigations and in fraud investigations, of which corruption investigations are a subset. 
particularly in cases where the signs of fraudulent or corrupt behavior are subtle. More broadly, in the investigations field, researchers are testing the viability of sentiment analysis in accounting fraud and corruption cases, some using publicly available emails as a way to validate technology's accuracy, specifically from Enron. Findings from these efforts have shown that sentient analysis does indeed reveal red flags in the Enron data set consistent with scandals from other events. It can also be used for proactive fraud detection and even moving to uh, prevention. Uh, Widely available, these advancements have the potential to significantly drive down time, cost, and complexity of dealing with large volumes of data in a technical diversity of data in the wild world. So uh, I think this is a really interesting article, and it's going to presage a lot of uh, strategies that compliance officers are going to use going forward. Next up, in an article from Dylan Tokar over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, the Justice Department and the uh, person of John Carlin, a senior member of the Deputy Attorney General's office, said in a speech this week uh, that the Department of Justice efforts to combat white-collar crime has fluctuated over the years, but that it would redouble its commitment uh, to white-collar crime enforcement under the Biden administration. He specifically said prosecutors can't be afraid to bring difficult cases, and he said that in I think you will see in the days and months to come, we're building up to surge resources for corporate enforcement. The um, crisis of confidence uh, has come in the ability to the government to monitor corporations and trust in corporations, and he believes that's bad for business. Interestingly, he also said that he would, uh, or there's going to be an embedment of FBI agents in the Department of Justice to combat fraud and corruption uh, in FCPA cases, healthcare fraud cases, and other white-collar crime cases. So that's a new development. And then finally, he turned to NPAs and DPAs, and he made clear that companies are going to have to demonstrate that they have complied with their agreements going forward, whether this means that they will be uh, subject to a monitorship or more robust oversight uh, remains to be seen. But I think we can uh, plan to see a lot more robust enforcement of the FCPA, uh, healthcare fraud, and probably PPP fraud going forward. And now we'll be right back after a message from our sponsor. Our next piece comes to us from the FCPA blog, this time Dick Casson, not Harry Casson, and he asks the question, why is ancient history part of so many FCPA cases? Well, he's looked at several enforcement actions, and he's come up with some reasons. Number one, the statute of limitations for FCPA offenses. The DOJ has five years to formally commence criminal proceedings. If the DOJ needs more time to gather foreign evidence, it can ask the judge to extend the statute uh, for up to three more years. The SEC can bring civil FCPA enforcement actions anytime from five years when the claim first accrued. Conspiracy charges tend to stretch the statute of limitations backwards. Most FCPA prosecutions involve the uh, federal conspiracy statute. For anti-bribery conspiracy, the statute of limitations can reach back to criminal behavior more than five years old if the conspiracy continued at any time during the past five years. This uh, really extends out 
and provides long-running or enforcement actions for long-running bribery plots. Uh, Corporate targets of FCPA investigations commonly waive the statute of limitations. When a company discloses that an FCPA investigation is ongoing or that when the feds launch their own investigations, target companies will routinely uh, agree to toll or waive the FCPA statute's limitations. A tolling agreement indicates that the company will cooperate. There's usually nothing to be gained by refusing to toll the statute of limitations. Uh, Next, FCPA investigations take a lot of time. According to data analyzed by Casson, nearly 20% of today's ongoing FCPA-related investigations were disclosed in 2015 or earlier. Even when an FCPA investigation uh, is triggered by a specific complaint, the chances are high that the investigation will spread into the company's operations in multiple countries and cover multiple years. That's because not only does the DOJ want a full picture and the SEC, but if your culture is such that you allow corruption in one country, you probably allowed it across the globe. Uh, The feds don't face corporate-style deadlines. Big companies have to deal with monthly sales targets, quarterly budgets, debt obligations, etc. The DOJ and SEC are not tied to any calendar or frequency deadlines. They can move at their own speed. And the feds often say they follow the evidence wherever it might lead and however long it might take. And in 2020, uh, we had uh, cases involving... uh, corruption actions as as early as 2010. So uh, it's still an ongoing thing going forward. Well, we're back to Ozzy. Remember, uh, we talked about the fraud that Ozzy perpetrated on the bankers at Goldman Sachs and indeed uh, to lots of other people who they promised that they had an A&E series ongoing. Well, last Friday they announced they were closing for business, but much like Lazarus or the Phoenix, they have arisen. And in an interesting article on Fortune uh, by Megan Leonhard and Jessica Matthews, they announced that... um, They're back in business, and in leaked emails, the Aussie CEO asked employees he laid off on Friday to return and indeed shared some ambitious goals. So from the compliance perspective, this is, I don't want to say beyond belief because we get a lot of crazy things in the compliance world, but if uh, you're looking at doing business with Aussie, don't. Uh, This company is obviously not trustworthy. They have values that include not... representing things as they are uh, in the light of day. And if you put money into Ozzy, either as an investor or as an advertiser, you need to expect that whatever they tell you they have done or will do, there's probably a little chance of that happening. Uh, If you want to advertise on a site that posts on YouTube, Ozzy's probably the place for you. Uh, But if you're looking at really uh, a company that's going to succeed, uh, you need to look very, very closely. Why anyone would do business with Ozzy is your guess is as good as mine. Nevertheless, uh, they are uh, back open for business. So good luck, Ozzy. Next up from the New York Times deal book, Jay Powell's uh, nomination for a second term at the Fed is certainly problematic at this point because of the numerous conflicts of interest which have appeared by Fed officers uh, uh, in their investment strategies going forward. As reported in the New York Times deal book, um, 
several Fed governors have resigned over the past uh, week, and this could certainly lead to Chairman Powell not receiving uh, either support from the White House or from uh, senators. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has already come out against Powell, and while that's not the kiss of death, it does really portend the difficulty that Powell will have in obtaining a second term. And our final article comes to us from our friend Lawrence Heim over at Practical ESG. And in this uh, article, he takes a look at a Big Stink over Paper Mill Green Bond. And it's about the graphics packaging holding company and its expansion for its Kalamazoo recycled paper mill. The company was accused of sending out foul odors wafting through the neighborhood surrounding the plant, which seemed inconsistent with each issuing a green bond. Uh, he pointed to an article which uh, said that the mur- how murky the definition of an environmentally friendly bond is, despite the growing hype. Um, and Heim agrees that uh, green bond definitions, parameters, and ESG in general are uh, indeed ambiguous. From this, he takes away several points. For companies considering issuing green bonds, consider broader stakeholder participation issues when developing prospectus and related materials. Uh, For those using ESG information, realize that contextual information can be critical in understanding the reality of a particular matter. Although technical experience can be valuable, it's not the be-all, end-all. And for those independently gathering and processing ESG, you're in a tough situation. Putting ESG data in anything other than ESG categories may not be your mission, but it's worth recognizing that surrounding facts and expertise may be important in making the data accurate and your decision useful. Uh, That concludes our stories, and now on to some podcasts and events. First of all, I am thrilled to announce that the Great Women in Compliance was honored by W3 as a top podcast in the diversity, equity, and inclusion category. Everything Compliance was honored as a top podcast in um, roundtable and uh, panels in podcasting. And the Compliance Podcast Network uh, is recognized for its work bringing compliance Uh, stories to the broader podcast world. So congrats to Great Women in Compliance, Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine, the Everything Compliance Gang, Mike Volkoff, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, and Jay Rosen, and to the Compliance Podcast Network, everyone who's a member of that. Compliance Week is going inside of the mind of the CCO. It's a survey they're doing, and we link to the survey in the show notes. So if you are a CCO in compliance, please participate in the survey. Ethosphere's World's Most Ethical Company Awards for 2022 are open for submission through November 12th. We have information on the application process in the show notes. Next up, in a very popular YouTube Uh, presentation and podcast series, Effing Argentina, I, along with Greg Greenberg, the author of the book, Effing Argentina, explore the current American psyche of being overworked, overleveraged, overtired, and overwhelmed. Find out about the modern America's exasperation with, well, exasperation. In this week's episode, we take up the ubiquitous couples dinner and what happens when one of the couples is an X plus one. What can you do to deal with uh, such a person going forward? 
Our next um, podcast is on The Compliance Life, where this month I'm visiting with John Malikan, Managing Director at Exeter, on his journey to and from the CCO chair. In episode one, we take on his early his college career, rather, and his early professional career at the New York County District Attorney's Office. What is design thinking and compliance? Well, check out the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, where, with my co-host Carson Tams, we discuss the social engineering tool of design thinking and how it creates greater compliance, engagement, and effectiveness. Uh, we've linked to episode one in the show notes. You should join myself at... Uh, and other top ENC professionals at Converge 21, a virtual conference on October 12th and 13th. I've got registration and information links in the show notes, along with some links to podcasts about why you should attend. And finally, how does a compliance Bible become a bestseller? Well, find out as I made an appearance on C-Suite Network's Bestseller TV. Also, you can purchase my newest book, The Compliance Handbook, second edition, um, in with a link in the show notes. I'm Tom Fox. I'm the voice of compliance, and I can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Jay Rosen will be back next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA.
So, Jay, uh, we're going to have a new segment on This Week in FCPA where I actually pitch a story to you. And uh, I think, as everyone knows, you're a recovering screenwriter. So your job in this is to hear the pitch and then uh, determine whether we could create a screenplay around it or is it just too weird. So here's the story I'm going to pitch to you today. Uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, a major investor or looking to be a major investor in a a multi-million dollar startup that's been very successful, uh, has a conference call uh, scheduled with a uh, business partner of this company. And the business partner of this company is YouTube. Uh, This company posts videos on YouTube in addition to their own social media outreach, and they are alleged to have millions and millions of YouTube subscribers. And so Goldman wants to do a little due diligence with YouTube. And so they schedule a Zoom call. And about 10 minutes before the Zoom call is to commence, the uh, YouTube uh, senior executive who is scheduled to be on the call emails in and says, have a little problems with Zoom today. Let's do it the old-fashioned way. Let's do a phone call. So they, you know, can scramble and, and go old school and do a con call. And they're having a con call with the YouTube executive, and uh, his voice turns a little odd. And they begin to think that there's some digital altering of his voice. So they conclude the call, and they turn this... Uh, matter over to Goldman Internal Security, who investigates it, and it turns out that it's not the YouTube executive, but it's the co-founder of the company seeking monies from Goldman. So, if I told you that story and said, hey, I got a great idea, you think we could make a movie out of this, what would you say? Well, indeed, I am, because that fact pattern actually uh, was reported this week. Ben Smith and the New York Times uh, and the companies involved were Goldman Sachs, and uh, uh, the, inve- the company seeking the investment monies was one company called Ozzy, and they uh, are social media and uh, uh, additional reporting. Uh, interestingly, as part of their internal investigation, Goldman Sachs actually contacted the YouTube executive not through his Gmail account that he had been corresponding with him with, but through his real account. And they talked to him, and he said, who are you? I've never talked to you. Uh, so it turned out the co-founder and chief of operations of Ozzy impersonated the uh, YouTube executives. Now comes the weird part. That, the first part I told you wasn't weird. Uh, now comes the weird part that uh, Ozzy closes ranks and says, well, uh, our co-founder was having a mental health issue, and uh, it's a, it was a one-time event, and it won't happen again. And the board of directors issues a statement that, well, you know, we've looked at this, and we, we fully support the way our co-founder uh, was treated uh, from this event. No report on what the uh, mental health issue or event was. Well, the fallout was literally immediate. Investors started pulling out a uh, top talent that they had hired, uh, one uh, Caddy Collins, um, 
uh, I can't remember. I don't know if I got the last name right, but her first name is Caddy. She resigned. She'd just come over from the BBC. Today it was announced the board uh, chairman of the board of directors had resigned. Several investors pulled back. And, uh, Jay, uh, you may be wondering, uh, what's the compliance angle here? Well, here's the compliance angle, Jay. You do, you have done background due diligence. You have, you, your company certainly could assist a business in doing background due diligence. Well, now, do you have to, if you can't do a face-to-face interview, do you have to assure yourself you're talking to the right person via vis-a-vis Skype or Zoom? Uh, what happens if, you know, in an investigation you've interviewed someone and they've used voice-altering software to impersonate a witness or an agreed party? Um I can see lot, lots of issues from this. And what was the fraud involved by Ozzy uh, having its co-founder uh, perform this call? Is that an SEC violation somehow because it's a defraudment of investors? So uh, we often joke about on this podcast uh, stories that are so weird, Hollywood wouldn't even take them. But it's yet just another case or another enforcement action, or another something. So this one really struck me as about as out there as you can get, and uh, I'm not sure if this is uh, life imitating art or perhaps art imitating life. Nevertheless, uh, I think, unfortunately, there are implications for the compliance professional, there are implications for the uh, compliance consultant who may do due diligence, and there's lots of implications uh, going forward. So uh, I'm glad we have this new segment where I get to pitch stories to you because the stories I pitch usually come from uh, some case. So Jay, what's our final story uh, in our story section on this week in FCPA? This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.